So some take a little very small piece of the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, and this is words the effect of uh, the person sits, takes up spine erect, sitting under a tree, spine erect, establishing mindfulness. Mm. Putting aside covetousness and grief with regard to the world, um, hankering, wanting, yeah, and distress, yeah, whatever you want to tease out of those two two phrase two words. Yeah. Sitting under a tree, spine erect. Establishing mindfulness, putting aside covetousness, ambition, wanting, and grief, distress, despond, despair, hopelessness, oh, the impact, the dents, the dents of the world, whatever your world is, people, jobs, scenarios, and so on. This is already quite a lot to do <laughs> or not a lot to do but shifts have to happen for that <laughs> and much of the sutta really the rest of the sutta is taking us through that by providing objects for attention and awareness Attention, that which detects an object, awareness, that which receives it. These different aspects, uh, mind and intention, just for the sake of that which gives clarity, pure knowing, freedom, release. You know, so these kind of things, understanding. Jnana, pure basic knowing, understanding pajanati, um, and nibbana, release, freedom, blowing out of sorrow and stress. So there's another thing there, intention. Intention, general motivation, inclination, attention, particular objects come into mind, brought into mind. And awareness, sensing the impressions that are created, contact. So all these we can experience in this whole conglomerate called a mind. Intention of mindfulness then is to establish knowing, clarity, and deep understanding, comprehension. So, now these very powerful experiences, covetousness, grief, ambition, distress, when they touch us, they generate their own intentions, motivations. So we want to get rid of them. We want to satisfy them. We want to quell them. Want to try to stop this ever happening to me again? 
um, don't want any more of this, I want to get rid of it, not have that, find some way in which the pang of that can cease. And um, But you notice the Buddha doesn't encourage us to go into these topics at all. It's the what's bothering us. But really establishing attention on them, mindful, staying steady, steady with that. And mindfulness of body. The first place to establish. And uh, my sense these are like, these four establishments are like Russian dolls. One sits inside the other. And the big one, primary one, is the body. As it's a very um, suitable form or experience for attention. You can definitely get there. And... Uh, it's much less, it's sensitive, it's it's responsive. Um, but unlike the mind, it definitely, there's certain boundaries to the body. Mind has no natural boundary. It just is occupied by whatever. It can be a thousand miles away, it can be in yesterday, it can be in tomorrow, it could be in your toe, it could be in something you know, has no natural basis, just just fills with whatever intention throws into it. Intention and attention, whatever they throw in, that's where your mind will be. This is not good, is it? Because what gets thrown in is often the reactive, the evocative, the stirring, not leading to Nibbāna, but leading to further agitation. Mm. Or mm, not necessarily unskillful, things we need, people need to do, but recognising that process doesn't end. It goes on. There's no real sense of rest or release in that. So then we're taking a hold of that process and saying, well, can we just bring attention to this body which has a certain finite quality it's uh, it doesn't proliferate the mind will generate more and more and more around any topic you put your mind on one thing it will generate more about it that's its function its conditioned function is to amplify embellish analyze make more the body just doesn't really do that its function is not to do that its function is to, is to maintain a form the two are related everything is related as we can recognize when profound shocks occur to on a mental or psychological level you feel it running through your body mm. this is a very obvious example And the mind is affected by many, many things, sights, sounds, thoughts, send some kind of like a like water, you drop a leaf on it, there's a shimmer. A lot of the time it's not leaves that are in in our pond but rocks splashing, getting thrown in, big effects. Poof, poof, poof. And it can switch from pleasant to unpleasant in the flash of 
one thought. From calm to agitation to excitement to happiness to disappointment, just with one word, one or two words, it can just switch. It's that mobile, it's that mutable. That's the mind's nature, is to be extremely effective, affected, and then to generate a whole lot of ripples around that. Why am I? What should I? Who am I? Why does she? How is that? What about this? What about more of that? Less of that? That's its, that's its function. There's no real stability in all that. The body's function is to stabilize. So if when you put those together, what happens is, you say you get a shock impression, your body holds that. So you stay in that state until you're getting a signal that everything's okay again then it can unwind. So the body firms up and stabilizes the mental effect. It kind of makes, you can, it's, it's, uh, the mental effect stays there. As we notice, if you have profound mental effects like fear, it takes that stays in your body when the impression has left, and it takes a little while to, you know, I'm okay walking up and down, fine, you're all right. Comes out and the body sort of shakes itself out, and it come you come out of it again. Hopefully, <laughs> so the body holds this incredible, you know flowing and fluctuating mind states, it it holds them. And something, you know, our, our attention, what really grabs our attention, determines which particular mental signal we're going to hold. It's going to be held. We see the attractive. We feel aroused by the attractive. That impression stays there. See an advertisement, you feel aroused by that, that impression stays there. Stays there long enough for you to start acting on it. If it just disappeared, you wouldn't be able to act upon it. So it, it's held. And it's held through a certain subtle bodily quality. Mm. Activation, arousal, panic, um, pressure. Got to get to work. Got to get to work. What happens there? Probably neck, eyes become extremely activated, stomach tightens up, and we're, you know, you can feel that effect in your body. Mm. That can be there running all day long, such that when you get home in the evening, it's still there, and you've got to do something to try to just discharge it. Generally, people will switch something on drink something, eat something, talk something, listen to something, look at something to give another signal to the body. Oh, yes, now, all right. Relax. Mm. It's not very thorough, that's all. Because generally what happens with that is we throw another load of, of impressions off top of the existing one. Yeah. So rather than really clean out, we just repaint, put another signal on. So this signaling process, the mind picks up signals and attention focuses on that and it, then it's, it gets established in your nervous system. 
we can get engrossed with that. You can be so absorbed in a in a signal of urgency that you don't notice it blocks everything else. Attention limits what you're aware of. It puts a boundary around it. So you're stuck into your particular topic that you're thinking about, investigation, study, process, work. And in that process, the rest of the world disappears. It's oblivious to it. Or we can get up and kind of fall out of our chair because we're so engrossed in, you know, in design or um, math or something like that. Philosophy. You know, the famous instant, you know, the absent-minded professor who's got his toast in his his pocket because he was involved with a philosophical problem while eating his breakfast and just shoved a piece of toast in his pocket and he, so out of it <laughs> absorbed in that so attention highlights choose an in, intention selects attention holds and then that whatever it's highlighted and, and given attention to charges our nerves our nervous system into a particular pattern. Mm. Right? And these are, we're in that, that's held in the body. So particularly in a working day, there's a lot of tension running into the body, but actually the body for itself isn't doing that much. It's not like you're lifting weights or running races, but um, being around, your body gets activated, so you feel quite tired from just sitting in a chair in the office because of the urgency signals that have occurred through the system, the arousals, the get-it-done experiences, and that's felt in your body. And this really knocks people out. This is what really ages people phenomenally, this constant activation of stress, neurochemicals and so forth, just rattles people into wrecks. <laughs> and it, it, So it's, it's not just mind... The mind is embodied, and these mental signals have an effect on the entire form. Everything is related. Attention, intention, contact, all that throws the world into you, and you, be- you become that. Your experience is that. And, yeah. In terms of activation, the most significant activations are around defense, because that's the most important thing for a mortal, vulnerable being, is to defend itself. If it doesn't defend itself, it won't get the food. If you put a rabbit in a room with a wolf and a carrot, it's not going to notice the carrot, is it? Because if you don't notice the wolf, there isn't going to be a carrot. (laughs) And so, you know... How much of one's perhaps semi-conscious inclination is, is to protect oneself from the disaster that would happen if you don't do this? The future, if you haven't earned enough money, you, know, you can lose your job if you don't get there on time. Um, you'd be seen in a negative light if you don't wear this, or you don't say that, or you don't vote for this, or you don't buy that. Defending oneself from blame, criticism, rejection from other beings. What happens if your performance doesn't up to get up to scratch on any level? Or better defend myself from the blame, the castigation, the rejection that's going to occur. How much of our motivations 
almost semi-conscious are about defending ourselves. And you know, then naturally we also have appetites. We want to feed ourselves, but defending ourselves is the first thing. What happens with defending yourself? Whether not physical or psychological, what happens? Can you sense that? Probably, it's a tightening up. There's a speeding up. There's an armoring, and this occurs probably your chest, your throat, your face. A certain activation there. Attention, contact, intention. What's the motivation? What do you notice? How does it affect you? What gets programmed into your experience of mind and becomes myself? So it's for the release of these. Uh, effects and also even more profoundly so the release of the effects is called calming steadying clear you know samatha that kind of approach but the release also from being prone to these effects is more profound and that occurs through insight that is we may in fact have quite a nice pleasant chilling time we ease ourselves up on retreat and then you go back and triggers, signals, same old thing happens again, you're back in it. Because, yeah, we've had a calm time, but have we really seen to how I get triggered? And the big triggering is, broadly speaking, defense. Yeah. And often we're defending ourselves from other people. So my relational realm is really uh, significant how we are with things. Coming out of defense and its partner, which is performance. Get somewhere so you won't have that feeling of didn't really make it, didn't have the optimal experience. Got to keep up with other people so I don't feel I'm being left behind. Mm. Those, those senses, particularly when you're in a group. That's why the relational field is something to, to really tune into how we sense ourselves in a, in, a, in a group. Better, same, experience, not experience, floundering. And all that, those effects, what are they going to do? Nothing very useful. And the mind will proliferate. It will take a gesture, a facial gesture, a movement from another person, and we'll get something out of that. And the mind can then generate ecstatic romances, antipathy, comparisons, judgments, and so forth. That's why it's so helpful just to get into the body because it's in the body you can feel the effects of all that triggering and you can undermine it. You can begin to release the effects of that. You can't release these seemingly psychological experiences psychologically. It's, a long, it's the long way round. 
You may understand them, you may have to give you a detailed understanding of them, but the direct release is going to occur when something, subtle body sense, let's go, breathe out. Oh, yeah. And in that we suddenly can see the world in a very different way. Attention then has to be carefully um, guided. So normally our attention is 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 uh, goes out through the sense doors, <coughs> eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, touch, taste. Sorry, eyes, ears, nose, taste, and touch. Sense doors, and they create a world of separation. Something out there, I'm in here. Mm-hmm. Now you go to, to the mind itself, to awareness itself. Where, where's the boundaries between me and it? There's just feeling affected. And there's somebody being affected. There's just the effective sense. Stirring, moving, sinking, rising, shifting. Strange, fluid world forms, images, pictures in it, all that. Where's the separation? And what's the one that really counts? It's that world, that's the one that really counts, isn't it? That's the one that stays with you when you put your head on the pillow, it's there when you get up in the morning, and it's not sights and sounds that are really going to be your basis, it's going to be this internal sense. Everything feeds. So we start to emphasise attention, restrain the senses, don't let your attention just keep running out, being affected and triggered by every sight, sound going on around you. Restrain it. And it's not, this isn't some kind of throttling experience, but restrain it in order to more deeply understand, more thoroughly understand what's happening. And to find the base of release. When we say uh, mindfulness centered in the body, the Buddha begins with breathing in, breathing out. This is, by and large, this is the very common standard. He doesn't, uh, knowing one's breathing in long, knowing one's breathing in short, breathing in, breathing out, uh, the full flow of it. So this, yeah, and there's a sutta which is just dedicated to this process alone, and a Panasati sutta which we'll also be um, touching into. Body breathing. How does the body breathe? So our attitude is how to go into the experience of breathing in and breathing out. It's not, the word is breathing, not breath. So it's a dynamic experience that shifts and changes and how the body experiences that, how it's affected by that, and the quality of uh, freeing up that can occur through that. 
for one thing, if we're really with that, we're not getting triggered by the other um, stuff, sights and sounds. But <laughs> once you enter the process of breathing in and breathing out, you are also experiencing all of the effects, the, the embodied effects of where your attention intention, contact of being. They're, they're, they're held in the body. So you experience there, you experience both the potential for liberation and also the nub of the problem. I feel tight, I feel lost, I feel I can't, I'm just swimming around, there's no center. It's just, where is this thing? Um, you know, I was breathing all right and still I started being mindful of it. No, it just feels really, can't find it at all, slipping off. Um, I feel kind of restricted in my chest or there's pressure in my, what's happening? You're entering into your, your damage, you know, the, the, the car crash um, that happens every day. <laughs> you know, the various uh, phenomena, the, the signaling that has occurred and switched these energies on. And so we're, in a way, we have to touch them in order to release them, but you've got to build up something that can do that. So you attend to the breathing. Where is it freest? Where is it most steady? Where is it simple? Where can you find that? Hmm. So first stitch, just drawing the body upright, spine upright. Sitting under a tree is really the sense of shelter. Uh, you can imagine in India, tree gives you a sense of seclusion and shelter, feeling safe. Again, because the first signal is defense. So if you're safe, uh, and what does that take when we're not, when we don't have 58 trees in the shrine room? <laughs> So you scan around and sense what's right in front of my body, chest, the skin, what's touching the skin, clothes, warm, it's okay, there's no nothing there. What's behind me, can the back, the shield come off, what's behind me, what's in front of me, and just to explore, because as an idea, yeah, everything's fine. But just recognizing some of these signals that can still be there, maybe we do come in with some shielding. It'd be rather unusual not to. So feeling the move as you're sitting, slight expansion of the body as you breathe in and breathe out. Coming to the fullness of the in-breathing, letting your body expand into space around you. Mm. Yeah, it's, there's nothing holding back there. What's in front of me is open, non-intrusive. What's behind me isn't on my back. It's like a warm fire.
the spine taking a seat. So when we sit, we really sit. We're not perched. We're not ready to jump up and go somewhere else. We're not, you know, slumped. We're really sitting, drawing the spine up, giving it a firm basis through the tail, the upper thighs, this kind of mass of the pelvis. This is the weight carrier, you know, not not the shoulders. Massive, bony structure of a lot of, which has mind functions to carry weight. You carry it down in your your pelvic region. So just really getting a sense almost of sweeping attention down your body as if you're draining from your face and your eyes like water gradually draining energy down, draining your attention down into the pelvis, the lower abdomen. Grounding. What's beneath me is firm, supportive, isn't going to go anywhere. My space. Get to the end when you feel yourself breathing out. Get to the end of the out breath and see if it will just go a little more fully out. And if you can track that in your lower abdomen, the full out breath. With the suggestion, is it possible to just breathe out just a little more completely? No hurry. We start to change our time signalling, which for most people is always primed to get to the next moment, the next experience. Now, there, there really, in our meditation, there is no next moment. Nothing you have to get to because it's going to happen by itself. So all the time in the world, to listen in, feel, sense. You know, and tune into the these muscles in the lower belly, right down to the pelvic floor, releasing, cleaning out, emptying out. And then what pulls the breathing in is not through your nose, but an involuntary pulling in the abdominal region, kind of something dragging, drawing in. This is the way the body does it. It's involuntary. That's why it's calming, because you don't have to do it. But you do have to tune into it, because otherwise what happens is your, your normal you know, programs of hurry up, get it done, that's enough of this, on to the next thing, will begin to affect your breathing and make it, um, and it loses its, you don't touch into its full regenerative quality, giving oneself the space then, the time to breathe out and wait for the in-breathing. Trust it, it's going to happen, never failed. And can we let the in-breathing really be done purely through the lower body? 
the doing of it. As if there's a force down there that's drawing the thread of breath in through the nostrils and the throat. So you want to have those areas open and inactive. Opening the nasal channels, the back of the throat. And letting the diaphragm obey not one's attitudes which are generally affects the diaphragm quite profoundly but just obeying the breathing diaphragm is the sheet muscle solar plexus area now we all know that, that will tighten up become rock-like when we do power when we do defense or aggression that's going to tighten up, harden up. Now, you know, can any trace of that signal, the last trace of that signal, not necessary. Not necessary to get it done, to be good at it, to... You know, is it possible for that? Acknowledge some of those signals. Hmm and turn your attention further down your body so the diaphragm is then looser and it's it's receptive it certainly shifts and moves but it's now a much looser lighter experience and just as your mind generates these signals that get in your body now your body can generate signals that go into the mind. You turn it around. So now we're using the body to generate a powerful signal of let go. It's going to happen. Mm. Tune in. Listen up. Get to the fullness of that. Let it express itself. Be interested. Be curious. What happens in your chest as that breath energy pushes? Can you allow that to keep your throat open? And for what happens in your head when you get the full sweep of the inhalation? When does it stop? What makes it stop? How does it know it's had enough? What senses? Flushing, tingling, and then pause. And then it turns, doesn't it? It hovers. At the end of the in-breath, there's a hovering. Something tingling, suffusive, and then releases, breathing out. You could pick up the energetic effects of that with some practice now so in all this you know, now we don't actually the Buddha doesn't stipulate that you keep your eyes closed um, in fact closing your eyes could be um, unbeneficial certainly 
uh, we're not going out through the eyes, but you can have your eyes just slightly open like a crack because the eyes closed as a signal. And the primary signal is go to sleep. Yeah. When you close your eyes, why do you close your eyes? Because you want to take a nap. So that isn't a decision, it's a signal. The other reason why we close our eyes, we want to think something through very carefully. Yeah, let me think. Close my eyes, I'm going to think. So it's the other thing we do when we meditate. Well, I go to sleep or think. <laughs> Why am I doing this? I don't want to come and go to sleep. I am tired, it's true, but if you're tired, you have your eyes open. Because you don't want to, you know, otherwise, you know, if you've got a lot of problems, a lot of things that are bothering you, don't close your eyes yet. Because otherwise you're just going to go <laughs> into all that stuff. And yeah, these need to be addressed, but you want to address them when you have the right way of doing it just throwing yourself into all that storyline again, going round the the ring on that one again, is not conducive. You have your eyes slightly open, you get, oh, that's different. Naturally enough, there's uh, also very, you know, suitable reasons why the eyes are so normally closed or downcast is because the visual field is our most habitual way of organizing ourselves. We we organize visually. If you're a designer, you organize visually. But anybody will tend to see the world first. We, we, and our mind very much picks up the visual signals. Yeah. Mm. Of course, it's not the only sense door. But the effect is there's a lot of energy in it, a lot of activity in the eyes, rapid eye activity is associated with thinking, and the eye tends to contract and tighten up. Then it gets agi- then it creates a signal to the to the mind. Think, agitate. And if you want to really play with that, you can tighten your eyes up as much as you can. Really screw them up tight, and then step by step release them. Is it possible to release a little bit further? Even with the lids slightly drawn back, you'll notice the visual field goes kind of vague. Now, of course, we may very well enjoy and feel uh, good about the clarity that the eyes give us, but recognize that this is just one way we organize visual clarity. There are other ways, sense doors, that have their appropriate signals. One is hearing, and one is touching. They're very different 
um, ways of organizing ourselves. So you might say, well, what's it like to hear, to listen, to just turn into towards that door? How does that affect how I experience myself? Suddenly, in listening, I'm in the middle of it all, aren't I? There's no real distance. So it's only through inference you can recognize that sounds an aeroplane. But it could be a vacuum cleaner in the next room. Maybe it's something wrong with your hearing. You can't exactly tell the distance. Hearing doesn't do that. But it carries a much richer sense of emotional tonality than seeing. Seeing, what goes along with seeing, is space. Whatever I see is separate from me. I'm here, you're there. Whatever. If it's a centimetre or a metre or a mile, there's space. And I can see things that don't see me. I can peek. (laughs) I can separate myself from what I see. Emotional tones in that are limited. Is that threatening or attractive? Familiar, unfamiliar. That's about it. On terms of effects. So that's in a way our first thing. Is this thing going to kill me or is it okay? Is this fellow, does he look trustworthy or not? Visual, distance, check it out first of all. That's our first line, isn't it? Because there's space in that. But the tonality is very, very limited. Hearing, you can't, it's a bit closer. You can't really separate yourself. But the tonalities are much more flowing. We feel moved, we feel inspired, feel touched, loved, threatened, fascinated. Lots of different tones in tonalities in hearing. That's why often when people meditate, they like to go to the hearing base because it tends to open the heart. You want to talk to somebody, you don't want just to see them, you want them to listen to you and get it all. Not as a fact, factual account of what you said, but the emotional tones in that. And you get that through your hearing. So when we get closer up to something, something that seems okay, safe enough, yeah. I always want to turn my mind like a listening organ to get the full feeling of that, to know it more thoroughly. To sense how it affects me. To sense what switches on with that. 
Now imagine if you're a, you know, what happens when people really, their lifestyles, their soldiers or whatever, their technicians, and it throw everything comes up into the seeing faculty, the heart's is switched off because it's not related to visual, very limited, not very rich, very limited. So you get this kind of technical exactitude, which is, can be heartless. Now, do you want to meditate with that thing? (laughs) Yeah, it's got its it's got its uses. Precision. There we are. Right now, let's go a bit deeper. Otherwise, where's the response? Where's the kindness? Where's the compassion? Where's the empathy going to come from? Where's the pleasant feeling going to come from? It's not going to come through that channel. We'll just get exact. And it's a fascinating place, place of exactitude. We love exactitude. Gives us a feeling of being really knowing it all and being in charge. Adding all all the numbers, linking the dots, doing the analysis, studying the books. There we are, we've got it all sorted out. I don't feel a thing. Great, that's how I like it. But now, in the direct experience, you're starting to listen in. Further, take it deeper, you come to body sense. Clearly, you're not watching your body. You're not watching a breath. I've never seen a single breath. Maybe in a cold morning, you might see a little bit of steam, but that's about it. And yet, how insidious that metaphor is. You focus on your technical precision faculty and meditation gets to be a pretty dry kind of experience about being precise and the competition to get more precise and more refined. We can't really hear our breathing either unless you've got a cold or a chesty but you can feel it, and you feel it through the body. Now the body sense is the most immediate. There's no way you can touch something without it touching you. The tactile sense is extremely delicate and refined. Your fingertips can pick up tiny degrees of sensation. You know, just rub your fingertips together and you'll feel how, you can feel every print on your finger, every indentation very sensitive experience. Now you want to have bring that faculty in to your meditation. When you've got your object, it's not kind of razor sharp, but it's there, it's good enough. You turn to it, like in a listening sense, like, hmm, what's this got to tell me? Hmm, what's this about? How's this? How's this feel? And then you begin to, what's really touching me? Because there's where the boundaries dissolve. In touch, there's no boundary. It's just being touched. So it's a very hmm, sensitive place. But you recognize the only organ that knows how to let go is the hand. Your eyes can't do it. 
you can shut them, but they don't let go. <laughs> the ears don't let go. They don't know that. They're not organized around that. Hand is organized around holding on and letting go. That's why it's so important in my understanding to really get operate through all these um, organizing principles, get the clarity, the empathy, but also very much how I'm affected, how I loosen, soften, how I hold things clearly and precisely, delicately, and also how I'm able to let go. Now that's going to happen when the mind operates like a hand, not like an eye. And because we are most radically organized around our visual sense, it takes a bit of learning. So often we just do walking, feeling your feet, how the body organizes itself around walking, feeling into it, standing, to give some exercises so that we can get more fully attuned to how the body's sense works. Clearly it's an external basis, something you touch, but the organizing of it occurs internally, you get a sense of something tight, I don't like that, you know, there's a shrinking, there's an opening to, there's a sense of how that's affecting the whole system. And really in mindfulness of breathing, this is going to make the experience very rich and uh, precise in its own precision way that's precise about what's being affected and also transferring the beneficial effects of this breathing in and breathing out into these places where our bodily sense is negatively affected we're carrying worry we're carrying grief we're carrying anxiety we're carrying frustration and then you tighten up around that sink. So this process then is a kind of like a healing process, sending that energy through the bodily system. This is how you dispel covetousness and grief. So let's um, take a few moments. And why don't we um, stand for a little while, just to get the extend experience of body down into the legs, freshen up.